Welcome to The How of Business with Henry Lopez and David Begin, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez and my guest today. I'm excited to have Ron Carucci with us. Ron, welcome to the show. Henry, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you with us. Uh, Ron is the co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, uh, where he's working with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations and for leaders and industries at large, really. He has a 30-year track record helping some of the world's most influential executives tackle the challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. Uh, he works from anywhere from startups to Fortune 10s, uh, in turnarounds to new markets and strategies, overhauling leadership and culture to redesigning for growth. Uh, he has worked within more than 25 countries on four continents. And Ron's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes and has been featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, Inc., and Business Week. You get it. He's He's been featured in a lot of the typical places that we all look to and read to learn more about being the best business owners we can be. Uh, Ron's also an author. He's either authored or co-authored eight books, including the most recent best-selling, Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives. That was with his colleague, Eric Hansen. Uh, Ron lives in the Seattle, Washington area. And today, we're going to focus specifically on a topic that he has talked a lot about and done a lot of research on, and that'll be obvious as we get into the conversation. But it's a topic of becoming, as he says, a powerful uh, person. In this case, we're going to translate it to becoming a powerful small business owner. And this was inspired as I was doing the research on Ron by a fantastic TED Talk. We'll have a link to that TED Talk on the show notes page for this episode. He did a, a TEDx talk specifically on this topic, and I thought it was fascinating, so I'm excited to have him here to talk about that. So with that, Ron Carucci, welcome to the show. Henry, I'm excited to be with you. Absolutely. So let's start before we dive into the the topic of powerful business owner, as I'm calling this conversation today, and I'm always curious as to the entrepreneurial journey. So tell us uh, briefly what what you were doing, uh, which was a lot of things, but we were doing leading up to before you started Navalent, which I believe you founded in 2004. But tell us about that journey to starting your own firm. Yeah, I think I'm like many of your listeners, I'm probably another one more accidental entrepreneur. We, I, I and some close friends were at a large consulting firm in New York City. And um, back then, it's interesting how even 14 years ago, the, the work we do was so profoundly different and how the, all of our lives have been disrupted by all kinds of digital forces. But there weren't as many firms doing leadership and organizational work then other than maybe as a side dish. And the firm we were part of was really a wonderful career pinnacle firm to be at, but it got acquired by a much, much larger firm. And once you get sucked up into a big machine like that, the craft and the art of what you love about what you do kind of gets to take a back seat while feeding the dinosaur becomes the primary mission. And I think we were losing our joy in the craft of what we do. And we thought, you know what, this has been an interesting run. We've been here, you know, just under a decade. We loved the work we did and we still loved the work more than anything else. And we loved doing the work with people that we loved. And so we thought, well, we can go do this somewhere else. So we decided to go off and start our own firm. Uh, although I don't, I, I can honestly say, I don't think we ever said the words, let's start our own firm. <laughs> I think we said the words, we love doing this work together. Let's go do it together. And even in the early days, we're, you know, we're very clumsy uh, of Navalent. It was a very awkward, who pays who the money and who invoices who. And, you know, it was just, it wasn't, but then we realized to affect the kind of transformational changes we really wanted to affect, you know, hiring contractors or our friends to come join large projects wasn't going to be sustainable. We were going to need more people to come join us on our journey and to continue to uh, evolve our craft and evolve our brand and evolve our methodologies even further than we had learned. And so we started hiring people. Um, and then the next thing you knew, we were, a, you know, a, a boutique firm. Um, I think at some point we realized, I think we, you know, like about maybe 10 years in, we thought we have to start using the word startup because we're not really that anymore. <laughs> now it's really time to grow up. <laughs> right. Um, and I think we're still doing that. But I don't, 
know that I would say being an entrepreneur and having my own firm was my aspiration um, as much as doing the work I love to do with people I love doing it with and not wanting um, all of the nonsense that comes with large bureaucratic organizations. And I think the iron, the biggest irony, Henry, is, you know, my deepest passion is for organizations. My deepest passion mm -hmm. is when you take organization, when you organize human endeavor at scale, what you can accomplish in ways you can't on, on your own. And so I, I think a long time ago when I, after leaving three or four large big company assignments doing this work internally, I realized that if I was going to be able to live out my passion for organizations, it was going to have to be by not being part of one. Um, and so the irony is I, I got to come full circle and go cre and create one where everybody gets to live out their passion for organizations uh, outside of them. And so have, did you find, especially early on, as you all were smaller and you're still relatively small compared to those large corporations that you help, uh, were you surprised by how much of it applies or doesn't apply those those teaching and that knowledge you had about how large organizations can operate most effectively? <laughs> did, did you find that that applied to a small organization uh, or it didn't? Well, Tell me about that. It's such a it's a, such a really painfully ironic question, Harry. You know, they, they, there's always an expression: the cobbler's kids have no shoes. Right, <laughs> and that's no we're no exception to that either. So a lot of them apply if you actually apply them. Right. Um, you actually have to do it though. And sometimes we're, you know, we are much better at affecting change in others than we are in ourselves. Um, the other reality is, you know, knowing about running an organization and actually running one are two different things. And yeah. I think the three of us who own the firm have always wrestled with our own ambivalence about leading a whole community of people versus leading an engagement of people to affect change for our clients. Um, and you have to want to do both. You have to want to do all the things that make a firm a firm and make a community of practitioners, not just a group practice, but actually sharing a common purpose. Um, and so a couple, a couple things that I hear though, Ron, sorry to interrupt it. One is that you actually had to learn to apply these um, methodologies, techniques, whatever they might be called to yourself where maybe you got away with not having to do that before because you were, of course, relying on and resting upon the structure of the organization you were with. Is, did you find that to be true? Well, that's very kind of you to presume in the question that we actually did learn. <laughs> um, I think we're still learning. You know, we're still learning yeah. how to build our own go-to-market processes and our own, um, I think our, our methodologies for how we do our craft, we've really buttoned up tight in our brand at Navalin. But I think... Mm -hmm. Our scalability, our sustainability, where we have to maximize for efficiencies and where we have to maximize for impact. I think that's still a work in progress. Even at 14 years, um, we're still learning to build muscles that, um, to your point, we've never been required of us before. We've been required to participate in other people's go-to-market muscles, for example, but never required to build our own. The other thing that's really, really yeah. significant in this, and I alluded to it before, and I'm sure this is true for all your listeners, the world's changed. What, what my field was 14 years ago is nothing like what my field is today. The, the literally, literally tens of thousands of practitioners claiming to do the same things I do um, that have entered the field as coaches, as solopreneurs, as small boutiques, leaving big consulting firms, starting their own little small ones, and, and where organizational leadership work has become now the center of the plate from being a side dish, it's literally mind-boggling. They use the same language, the same words. Now, when we say organizational transformation, we're talking about deep systems change and really deep change in your psyche. Somebody else could say organizational transformation, and what they mean is we do Myers-Briggs. Um, but to the naked consumer who's looking for some significant amount of change, they may not know the difference. And so how yeah. we tell our own story, how we live and embody our own story and set ourselves apart from the gazillions out there is a very different set of requirements than it was even 14 years ago when we barely did it at all. So we have these two, we have an internal force causing us to change. And then we have this incredibly um, uh, intense external force being imposed on us. And when you're a small boutique business, that's a lot of headwind. We're doing great. I mean, we're, we're very excited. We have, we have a, we've got a, a long track record of clients who've been clients for many years. So we've never experienced the, the, the challenges economically, thank goodness. But competitively, we're we're having to, you know, go to the gym and build some muscles we haven't had to build before. Yeah. It's got to be a particular challenge, though, Ron, because 
throughout all organizations, regardless of size, I think people are always so anxious to find the quick mm -hmm. fix. And it, if I'm starting to gather what you do that's differently, it requires a bit deeper dive, right? To, to put it simply, is that, oh is that my fair gosh, that Henry, that's part of the challenge that you're facing? Henry, it's, that's very insightful and it's maddening. When somebody calls and says, hey, can we do a whole enterprise redesign of our organization? We have about 8,000 employees. I, do, I have about a week. Yeah, or come in and speak at our next gathering and fix this in a in a twenty minute. Oh my gosh! Yeah, could you just we we want you to do it? I had a major major security government agency call me and say, we need to do something for our top top leaders, mm -hmm. people who are you know, you know, holding the national security of our country in our hands, and we really need to give them this keynote. Can you come and do a ninety minute keynote? And I, I, sometimes I don't even know what to say. Yeah. You know, or, you know, our major R&D muscles uh, where we innovate and take new products to market from innovation, marketing, R&D and, and, and logistics are not getting along. They really are. They're, 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 they're rivaling. They're intractably in conflict with each other. The leaders don't get along. Can you come do team building? When the problems lie at much deeper levels um, of, of design and metrics and processes and there are actually systemic factors in place encouraging those behaviors. So no amount of team building is going to fix yeah. it. And you know that when they call, but they're so committed to their, their, their anger, they're in pain, they're desperate. Um, and, you know, I get it when someone goes to the ER and they're in pain, just get me out of pain. I understand that. But to say to them, I understand that you believe that this bandaid you're asking me to put on will get you out of pain. I'm sorry to tell you that it won't. But if there's a firm right coming behind me saying, but well, oh no, I'll, I'll do the same bit and it, it will work. Yeah. They're going to buy them over me. Yeah. Often, sometimes if they're wise and, and, and they and know better, they realize that, um, you know, the triage is not going to work. But that is a reality today that people want the silver bullet and then ha they have not stopped hunting for it. No matter how many case studies we have of failed silver bullets, that human instinct to want to be out of pain that you, that you caused um, as quickly and cheaply as possible is just human nature. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Now, the other thing I want to go back to you, as you were explaining earlier, the challenges that, that you've experienced in, in applying these approaches to your own firm. As small business owners, is part of it also, you think, the fact that we were in a small business, we're so dominated by one or two or three big personalities, right? The entrepreneur, the owner, that... Um, I don't know, we, we, we kind of overpower these better organizational approaches and techniques and fund foundational components. Has, is that a big part of it, you think, with smaller businesses or one of the challenges that you face? At the large end, we face that challenge we just talked about, right, where it's so big, they want a quick fix. But I think the smaller business deals with a whole nother set of challenges of, you know, the, the guy or gal in charge doesn't want to let go sometimes. I think that's a, you know, I actually think that you have the, the same problem of wanting a quick fix in both startups. Startups want a quick fix because they can't afford to spend time on the problem. Mm, yeah. Um, I think, you know, the biggest challenge I see in small businesses whenever I work with them, sure, sometimes you have that larger than life personality. Um, or you have the Santa Claus founder who is benevolent to everybody and allows mediocrity to flourish. The biggest mm. challenge I see with small business owners is they do not have never taught themselves how to stop working in the business and to step out and work on the business. And they don't step out and look at their, even if they've got three employees or five employees or 20 employees, um, that's a system. That is an integrated complex system of parts and pieces and people. And you've got to know how it all fits together. Um, and so often, um, you know, if I walk in, the biggest challenge I see is they have no identity. If I ask a small business owner, tell me your strategy, I might get a cheesy mission statement or a vision statement or I might get a set of values that Google them put on the wall. I might get, I might get some goals and objectives. Um, I might get Costco called. Here's their big order. That's the strategy. <laughs> we, all, we just rented more car manufacturing capacity at the plant down the street because we need help. And I'm like, that's all very interesting. Uh, but tell me who you are. Tell me why people who pay you money to do what you do would choose you over the person up the street who does what you do. Why are you better than them? Why would they choose you? What makes you different and better? On what basis do you have a right to win and compete? And they can't tell me. And yeah. that tells me their swim lanes are wonky. They're, there's no boundary conditions. They're chasing the next dollar. Whatever, whatever they went, the salesperson went and sold, that's the strategy. Um, and of course, we, we all know that's not sustainable. 
but but they've not done the disciplined work to set their identity in place, to set their swimming in place, and then put the organizational components in place that can embody it. Um, and yeah. so their leadership behaviors, while wonky, they're either micromanaging at too low a level or they're you know, creating compression and decision-making, or they're at flying at such a high altitude that they've allowed mayhem to ensue. And I, I, so many startups in Silicon Valley, you know, they go from 10 employees, they get their Series A money. Now they're at 150 employees and they think, look at all this great energy. And I'll say, no, I actually, I don't think it's energy at all. I think it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's they're crazed and they're suffering. <laughs> they're not excited to be here. They're exhausted. What you see as intense entrepreneurial energy is actually draining their capacity to compete. But entrepreneurs thrive on it. And the minute you say things like standardization or process or discipline, what entrepreneur wants to hear that, right? They hate the word no. Right. Um, and no is the most important word in a, in a vocabulary of a leader. It's the most important mm -hmm. word to be able to say no to, to even great ideas so that the commitments you've made to greater ideas can actually prevail. And so those, when I see small businesses suffering, I, I can bet 99% of the time I'm going to find their greatest struggles in them not working on their on the business and, I, and truly carving out an identity they can succeed with, organizing the work accordingly and leading at the right level. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, again, it's so it's so reactional and, instead of, um, you know, having any kind of clear, defined path. Um, all right, let's let's get into now this topic of um, power and being powerful, um, and how to be more powerful than powerless, as as it was the title of your TEDx talk. Uh, I'd love you just to introduce the topic uh, and what you mean by by power, and and let's start the conversation there if we could. Yeah. So um, we when we did we did our ten year longitudinal study, it was provoked by the discovery that you know, those who with promising leadership talent were rising up in their communities, in their organizations and failing 50. And, and it's been known for 20 years that more than half of them fail within 18 months. And that got very personal when it became people we were working with. And so we wanted to understand that. And so we launched this very intense and comprehensive study to understand what were the landmines that these otherwise promising leaders who were told they had high potential were stepping in and who was putting them there. One of the dimensions we isolated in our research was that of power. And when we went to isolate the factors that, you know, of leaders who could, you know, had either some version of position or relationship or information available to them to exert their will on those they led, we, pre we, we expected to find all of the common abuses of power you, you read about in tabloid headlines, um, mm -hmm. self-indulgence, immorality. Um, self-interest, greed, and certainly those were present. They were not as prevalent as we expected, but they were there. But by far, the greatest abuse of power that we found was not the indulgence of it. It was the abandonment of it. It was leaders too uncomfortable, too anxious, too afraid to use the power that accompanied their positions, and so therefore setting it down and not using it at all. Uh, that was by far a much greater abuse of power. And that abandonment of power is what actually allows other leaders to abuse theirs because there's no obstacle to stop them. And you know, mm. when you get up to that place where you suddenly have decided you're impervious, you keep moving the line, no one stops you. So you keep moving the line. 5,000 employees yeah. at Wells Fargo didn't wake up all in one day and say, hey, I got a great idea, right? That That took many, 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 many years for them to get to that level of, deceit. But that was because there was no other force to stop it. And so I think small business owners become, to your point, oh, so overwhelmed by just keeping either, either keeping the lights on and making payroll or with, with intensified tailwinds where they've just got to get the orders out the door and get them shipped right and get them to the right customers and, and you know put out the fire of the screaming customer who got their order wrong. They're so embroiled in that daily grind of just keeping things moving that they have no time to be influential. They have no time to really influence the organization in ways only they can because they haven't built uh, the things underneath them that allow them to, or they're too afraid to disappoint people. I mean, so many entrepreneurs want to be, you know, the benevolent father that just makes everybody happy and purchases their loyalty yeah. and makes them all happy. And so that they never feel held, held accountable or pushed to perform. So 
yeah, the thing that was the biggest surprise to us was that um, leaders are so reluctant to use the power for the great good they could use it for. Yeah. You know, at first blush, it is surprising, but then, you know, as someone who has also worked with a lot of small business owners, it, it, it actually makes sense. It's just that those, those people who abuse their power, those small business owners who become tyrants and uh, either gather some level of notoriety, whether it's local or national or global or not, that they get the attention, right, as it is with a lot of these things. But the truth is, to your point and observation, as I was thinking about it, that there's a lot more of those business owners that acquiesce or like don't don't leverage that position of power that they should take in a benevolent way, and you you've talked you talked about that in your study and observation and thinking this this um, this comes from childhood where we we develop this in childhood this idea that power is bad right yeah so you know, the one thing I wish I had had come clean on in my TED talk is the, all those early examples I give of, of, you know, your parents giving away your Halloween candy and playground bullying <laughs> and being falsely accused. Those were all me. Those were all my experiences ah. of power. <laughs> um, but, the, but they happen to all of us. Again, again, it's that we, we get taught either in childhood or then later on in life and in school it's all about not abusing power and here's how it can go bad. And we see it in examples throughout history. And so we definitely get conditioned into thinking, Ooh, I, I have to be benevolent, benevolent at all time. I must acquiesce at all times. Power is greed. Power is bad. That's, that's the connotation. I think we all tend to develop. And we're all, we've all been on the receiving end of, it, of its misuse, even at yeah, the smallest right. level, a teacher yeah. has a favorite student. Um, a coach puts in his son to kick the winning goal instead of the most talented player. So we don't see meritocracy. Um, we see um, in, in, early, in our early jobs, resources going to favored nation status employees instead of deserving ideas. And so we, we struggle to reconcile the principles we're told about how power should be levied versus what we're actually seeing or, or um, what we're on the receiving end. Right. And the minute, the minute a child or a young adult or even an early professional uses the words, that's not fair. And there's remotely a a piece of truth in their assessment. That person has now become jaded. Right. You've now taken their trust and authority away. Um, The more um, unfair somebody perceives things to be, the more entitled they become. We know we've known for a long time that a sense of injustice sets the stage for unethical behavior. You know, when, because when I feel wronged, I now have decided, well, fine, I'll take mine. Right. And I'm justified in doing so. And and you set the example. (laughs) So the other dynamic I think that comes into play in small for small business owners is in small organizations, the, the leader, the owner, the founder, really gets to know this group of people that they're working with. And so it becomes very familiar and very familial. And and I think that also must cause this challenge with exerting power because you've gotten too close to these people. Do you see any truth in that? Oh my gosh. It becomes collusive, right? So I've now bought your loyalty and bought your friendship. And so now having to hold you accountable for contributions you need to make that you haven't or commitments you made you didn't keep um, becomes very difficult because you, mm-hmm. you, I've trained you not to expect me to push you. I've, right. I've trained you and conditioned you to expect me to affirm you, to praise you, to buy you gifts, to be nice and kind to you, to be one of you. And for me to have to say that's, that's not acceptable or this needs to be done again, or I'm sorry, you have to stay late, or you made a commitment to having it done by five. You didn't you know, I'm docking your pay. Hmm. Or if this happens one more time, you're going to be unemployed. (laughs) Um, When we have to, you know, force people to perform to standards, um, that becomes a normal people, my own fear of rejection, the isolation that comes from that, the sense of estrangement from people who are now going to be gossiping about you in the break room, all that stuff that comes with leadership and having to disappoint people I avoid it. I don't like it. I tell small business leaders, you have to understand that leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. 
Hmm. Interesting. And if you're not capable of disappointing people, you shouldn't be leading. Right. Right. And if that if that's not you, if you determine that's not you, then you need to bring someone in who can play that role yep. Yep. Um, and be the leader that the organization needs or, or you will fail. Right. Uh, um, inevitably. This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How of Business podcast. And I invite you to schedule a free business coaching consultation with me. I welcome the opportunity to chat with you about your business goals and offer the guidance and accountability that we all need to achieve success. As an experienced small business owner, I understand the challenges you are experiencing. And often it's about helping you ask the right questions to help you make progress towards achieving your goals. I can help you get there. To find out more about my business coaching services and to schedule your free coaching session, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. All right, you, you break it down then into three categories or areas that I'd like to dive a little deeper in uh, you, you of, of where we can and should exert power, especially within a small organization. This is the area of position, network, and information. So I'd like to touch on the three of those. Let's start with position, which I think is where you talk about bringing a sense of justice. So explain that to me, if you would. You know, e even in the small communities uh, of employees, there are there are things that are not right. Right there are there are um, we're having to use we're still using whiteout. You know, I was I was in New York City last week in a at a at a real estate office uh, signing a lease for an apartment uh, with my son going to school there, and they literally had a, we had to change the date on it. They literally pulled out whiteout to you know white it out, b blow on it. I'm like, wow, this is like we're right back in the '80s now. <laughs> um, th there are there are you're asking people and your employees to work in suboptimal ways. You have not. You have not set the stage for them to work uh, at their best. Um, there are resources being, you know, misused in some way. There's something incongruent somewhere in your organization because that's just human nature. And when you allow those things to fester, when you allow those incongruencies to go unaddressed, especially if someone's told you about them or you've heard that people are frustrated by them and you, it looks as though you're condoning them. Um, you create a sense of imbalance. You create a sense of guardedness because now I don't know that I can trust the system with it, even if it's only 10 of us in an accounting firm or 20 of us at a dry cleaners. So now I begin to calculate my contribution, right? I now am making, even if it's at a very unconscious level, I'm now making choices about any extra mile I might go, what I might raise or not raise, how I might treat a certain customer based on the choices you're making, whether you're making them consciously or not. So being able to right the wrongs in your community, being able to level the playing field and make people believe that the system you created is reliable, it's trustworthy, it's just, is critical to unleashing the best contributions people can make. Because the minute I decide it's not fair, now I may decide it's not fair, but I'm the beneficiary of that. It doesn't mean I'm going to contribute more. It just means I'm going to become entitled to getting continue to get that, and if I think I'm the I'm the um, it's to my detriment that it's unfair, then I'm going to be entitled to take. So either way, you create entitlement. So your job as a leader is to be constantly zooming out and step out of working in that system because it's never going to be unfair to you. You own it. Your name's on the building, right? Right. So you can you can make anything happen you want. Now, you most small leaders would tell you, I have no power. I can't make anything happen. I feel. Like no matter what I do, nothing happens. They'll all tell you how powerless they feel. But it doesn't matter to those who whose paychecks you sign, whose whose careers you have control over, they assume it's all all the power and none for them. So regardless of what yeah. you feel, they perceive you to have far more than you may feel. Um, and the reality is you probably have more than you're behaving as if you have. So you've got to be vigilant to be on the lookout for those areas in your in your community or your organization or your little business where there are there are um in contradictions where there are inconsistencies and you've got to be finding ways to better balance those tensions or people will conclude that the system is is rigged against them so many great takeaways there ron so that that's an example of using your position of power 
to try the best you can to address those areas, which are so much more prevalent, I think, sometimes in a small organization. I might have a family member working in the organization. I, I, I may it just it may not be my skill set. I might be hiding from it. All of those things come into play. But then also the thing that's such a key takeaway, I think, for small business owners is those those little adjustments in in uh, effort and in productivity that an employee makes are so much more exacerbated when I have a small organization, right? I could argue that in a larger corporation, um, yeah, it, it's harder because those things get multiplied, those behaviors. But in my small organization, I may only have one or two people that are customer facing. And if they're making those adjustments because they think the playing field is not level, the impact on my business can be phenomenal. And immediate. You know, and immediate, yeah. I mean, it, you're absolutely right, Henry. In larger organizations, you have some, you have some absorption room. You have some. You yeah, know, I have some buffer. I have, you know, I have. I'm hopefully maybe not everybody has taken that route. I have newer people. I have some kind of structure that maybe buffers that. But in a small edition, you have no margin for that. Um, yeah. And I think the flip side of what you say is also true. I have one person in a, you know, in a 20 employee group who decides to go an extra mile, or to. Um, self-initiate the implementation of a good idea that I've empowered him to do, I now have the upside to that as well, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you it, it, that, that knife cuts both ways. That when you create an environment where leveling a play field is, is, is a sense of justice, and you want people, when they see those inconsistencies, you don't want them to have to come to you. You want them to just feel empowered to fix them, um, especially if that injustice is toward a customer. And if somebody feels like, you know, um, the owner's nephew is getting special treatment or there's certain perks that some employees get that others don't, or there are certain decisions that some people with less competence than me get to participate in. I'm going to, I'm going to keep score. Um, and if you don't know what people are keeping score and what they're harboring and you assume that no news is good news, that's a really dangerous place to yeah. be. All right. So that's where I can exert as a leader power from a, from my position and the ability to right those injustices in my organization. Let's talk about now, as you call it, from a network perspective. And I love this one because this one, this one really is, I think, one of the areas where we can use our power to, to help others feel like they matter. So chat with me about that. Yeah, you know this was so wonderful to discover, and I think in a in a world of, of of connectivity today, digital or live connectivity, relationships are such an underleveraged source of power. Um, when I, you know I think about the people in my firm, um, very very talented consultants who could have chosen to go any number of places, but they chose to come here, and I have I feel an incredible privilege and I feel an incredible obligation to them. Um, what an incredible gift they give me to. Now, I, they're obligated to perform and contribute, and I'm obligated to create an opportunity for them to thrive. But if I don't leave them better than I found them, mm -hmm. shame on me. Mm -hmm. So no matter what kind of business you're running, no matter what kind of employee you have, whether they're early in their career or later in their career or in the middle of their career, you know, whatever number of years they've chosen to spend with you, you should feel a, an incredible privilege and obligation to leave them better than, than you found them to make sure they're becoming the best versions of themselves, to make sure they're discovering extents of their talents and the ability to, to find their dreams, the ability to feel like they're making a difference in the world in ways they didn't know. It does not matter what the job is. It doesn't matter how menial of a task or repetitive the task. You know, Do they come to work every day to earn their paycheck or do they come to work every day to make a difference? Um, and you get to decide what environment you create for that. There's not a person on the planet who wakes up every day and consciously thinks, how can I be invisible today? How can I make, how can I do the least amount possible uh, and make the little uh, difference and feel the most insignificant about myself? <laughs> That's not what people think. Some people may look like they behave that way because they're yeah. lazy. Yeah. Um, but deep down inside, that's not how people start. We all want to know that we matter. We all want to know that our contribution counts in the eyes of somebody important. And we want to feel like somebody believes in the work we can do and the ideas we might have and the gifts we might want to cultivate. And as a leader, you have the incredible privilege to create an environment collectively and even at you, in which you as a leader personally invest in, in letting people unearth and surprise themselves with 
um, impact and talent and contributions they never imagined making. I think that um, one of the areas, you know, as I was thinking about this and translating it to a very small business and a lot of my clients and listeners think about, well, how does that apply to my you know, minimum wage employee? And, and there's so many ways I think it applies, Ron, and I know you agree with me, but, you know, one of the, one of the techniques, I'll call it a technique that you talk about is to, to approach it with asking them, tell me how you did that. And I want you to speak mm-hmm. to that, but I can see that applying to all levels of employees. I can see that, you know, at our car wash business, for example, we we train everybody to when when it's their turn in their rotation to greet the customer and to offer them our unlimited club plan. And I could see very simply for someone who's done really well that day in 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 positioning it and selling it and greeting the customer, tell me how you did that. And why is that so yeah. powerful? Just that that simple question of someone. So oh, it's such a I love this. It's what I think gratitude and and fascination are two of the most underleveraged leadership tools. You know, we we all our contributions are extensions of us, right? There, it's not just the thing I did, but it's me that did it, and it's a reflection of me. And I, you know, one of the questions I often ask uh, when I speak in front of audiences. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever had a compliment from your boss that insulted you? Hmm. And unfailingly, about half the room raises their hands. And why would a compliment insult you? And when I ask, what was it about the compliment that you found offensive? The most common themes are they had no idea what they were talking about. Hmm. They didn't know what it took for me to do it. Um, and it felt contrived. It felt like they checked off their I gave a compliment box today. And so... Behind every contribution, especially if the contribution required sacrifice, especially if it took, you know, maybe it's on your car wash line, it's the first time I'm going to offer somebody that unlimited plan. Um, there's a story that, you know, they worked themselves up in their head. They had to think about the words. They had to think about the training you gave them. They had to think about what's the customer going to say no. What if I fail? Will I get in trouble? There's a story behind an achievement. And when you as a leader ask, tell me how you did it. When you ask for the story, you're acknowledging that the contributor and the contribution are fused that they're, they're one in the same story. And when I get to tell you that story and when you act impressed by that story, you legitimize and you empower me. You, you validate me as a human being as, and as a contributor. And I know that I'm, what my work was important to you as the person who owns this business. Nothing feels more affirming, more self-esteem building, more confidence building to an employee than to know that my work was seen and noticed and the story of it mattered and that someone else might learn from my story. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, such a key part of it. I think Ron, because, you know, we, we were talking so much about, you know, working on the business. It's about developing systems, infrastructure, structure. We have all these rules that we lay out and then we expect employees to perform within it. But when we simply give it that perspective of how did you do it, that to the employee signals, oh, this person really cares about how I might have had a different idea or approach or just like you said, my story, not, you know, what, what button did I push? But but tell me your story, how you did it. That can't, it, it, it just impossible not to receive that as, oh, you're, you're really interested in how I approached it and why I did it that way. You're interested in me. And and who doesn't want that, right? Who wants to fuck a cog? Oh, Nobody wants to fuck a cog in the wheel. You know, yeah, I mean, how exactly. many people leave? Co- I mean, that's the one one of the greatest advantages of small businesses is that mm-hmm. people leave big companies because they're tired of being a cog in the wheel. They don't. You know, we've all heard the expression, "I don't want to work for the man," right? And so they want more control of their own destiny. They want more control over their own career. And and there's a perception, right or wrong. That small businesses create more opportunity for that. Well, they do if you make them create those opportunities. It doesn't mean they will. That's right. I've had plenty of people in big companies feel like they're thriving and like they matter. And I've had plenty of people in small companies feel like they're invisible. So size does not in and of itself determine that experience. But the opportunities you can create for somebody to lead, to stretch, to grow, to contribute, to push the boundaries of your business and grow it in a small business are far more ample than a big company can do. But you have to take advantage of it. Yeah. You have to exert that power that you have as the leader to make it happen. And and it's not just yourself. It's the, the people in leadership positions within your organization, however small it is, my shift leader, my site manager, those people have to be coached, empowered, and trained to do the same. 
All right, let's go to the third point uh, or area, which is about information and how I need to exert my power in this area to, to create a, a, a small business that people want to be a part of. So tell me what you mean about this topic of information or the power to change perspectives, as you say. You know, it's what's interesting to me, especially in a small business. Um, first of all, it, you know, I think most small business owners don't realize you're making, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of decisions a day, no matter how small or how big they are. And so are your people. Now, they may be making decisions to come to you for an answer, but those decisions are informed by something. Those decisions have some fact base, some intuition base, some database, somebody Googled, Googled something to get an answer. And yet, ironically, we do not take the time to understand how do we make sure that information is available to people. Used to be that the information was so such a scarce commodity that we'd hoard it. And if you had the information, you had power. And if you didn't have the information, you didn't have power. Now, information is ubiquitous. It's whose interpretation of the information becomes the source of power. Well, you as a business owner may be in the least reliable place to interpret data because of your view um, versus your employees who are facing customers, your employees who are in the technology pieces or working on your website or your employees who are outselling your product or service. And so their perspective, their input matters. You having information that has to change their minds to change their behavior or them having information that needs to change yours. How information is exchanged, how facts are treated, um, how data is interpreted, and how justly it's available is an incredibly important source of power. If people feel like your, your answer is always right, your interpretation always prevails, um, or there's no fact base to support your answer, it's just because you want your way, and so, so they have, have a dueling fact base that contributes or contradicts what you want to do. Now information's a weapon, right? It's a weapon that's either being levied to get your way or ignored to get your way. In a small business, you've got to teach your organization what, on what basis are you making choices? What is the information base, the fact base, the perspective base? How, what information will change your mind? What information do you want to use to change the minds of employees who are making choices you don't want them to make? If it's always about your opinion, and we all know what it's like for somebody to you know, turn their opinion into fact, uh, it's annoying. We all know what it's like for people to you know, embellish. I, I tell small businesses all the time, the plural of anecdote is not data. <laughs> I'm hearing from everybody that, okay, well, we have four employees, so who's everybody? So you know, teaching people not just to be honest about information, but how to neutralize the playing field of how the information is interpreted to, to, to invite dissent in your team, to invite conflicting point, points of view, to allow dueling fact bases to you know, uh, have spirited debates so that the best ideas can prevail. I let you all feel ownership of those ideas. But, but to be on, on cruise control and to not know what fact bases, what intuition bases, what voices, what um, opinion bases, are informing your choices and to have those choices just be, you know, on a rote execution really puts you at risk of missing ownership of those choices and missing facts that could come back to bite you later. Yeah. Two things on that, Ron. One is I got to believe, and I'm curious in your experience, that part of what might keep me from doing that is that I fear or feel like it might undermine my supposed position of authority and knowledge, right? If I if I listen to input that it might signal that I don't know what I'm doing as the leader of this business. Do you, do you observe that? Do you think that comes into play? There are so many leaders, small business leaders, as well as executives in big organizations who believe their job is to be the answer mm -hmm. ATM. And that my basis of my credibility is my expertise and my knowledge. Um, that is the, one of the most dangerous places to be as a leader and one of the most flawed beliefs. Your lack of – if you think that people don't see right through the areas you don't know and they're not exploiting those <laughs> for their own gain, you're nuts. Um, your vulnerability, your ability to admit the limitations of your knowledge um, gives you more credibility to exert the areas where you are knowledgeable and creates a learning environment to have everybody learn in the places where you don't. And so trying to appear omniscient, trying to make the presumption that they ask the questions, you have the answers – and then, which always puts you in the position of having to make stuff up when you don't know it, um, is a you are just disabling people's initiative. You are dumbing down your your team and your workforce. 
um, and you are putting yourself in an incredibly difficult position of, 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 of a roadblock of all decision pathways having to lead to you. Um, and you will, you will suffocate your organization's ability to grow and scale because you'll limit its capacity to self-decide, to generate data and insights on its own. Absolutely. Completely agree. Well said. All right. We could talk about that for another hour, but we'll start to wrap it up here. One last question here, and then we'll we'll take a right turn on the questions. What else have you seen that large corporations do well that they get about leadership? And we've touched on some of this, but what, what have we not talked about that large corporations do well that as small business owners, we could learn from? Well, I think in the, um, I wouldn't presume that they're that much better at it than small businesses, unfortunately. <laughs> but the ones that, that take leadership seriously, the ones that actually believe that leadership is a capacity that you have to build the same way as, as making products, delivering services, operating your business, you know, having a technology platform or website, all those are capabilities you have to have. Leadership is also a capability you have to cultivate. And as a small business owner, the last thing you want to do is have to layer over people right, is that you haven't cultivated enough leadership, but as you grow from 10 employees to 30 employees, you can't have them all report to you. So you have to put leadership in somewhere. And if you haven't cultivated the leadership around you to be able to lead, to be able to create opportunities for people to have to make choices and solve problems and um, guide other people, um, uh, that's unfortunate. And so I think that, you know, talking about leadership as a capability with being intentional about who are the leaders in your business that show potential, who, if you die tomorrow, who would you want leading your organization? Yeah. Um, if if you suddenly got a windfall of money or suddenly got a, a great wind at your back and had to grow quickly, who would become your management team? Do you have those people there? Who could lead teams of people on the front line that you wouldn't have to lead? And so I think the intentionality of investing in leadership as a capability and cultivating individual plans for not, maybe not every employee, but, but those employees that certainly want to grow in their leadership experience and one experiences of their own leadership, um, being intentional about at least some handful of them that you're purposefully cultivating is so important if you really have aspirations to grow your business. Yeah, great takeaway. Thank you. All right, summarize for us. We, we've touched on it here and there, but summarize the services that you currently offer your clients through Navalence. Yeah, so we spend our days, you know, mostly doing a little bit of everything that we talked about, you know, strategy, organization, and leadership. You know, when we find an uh, a, um, a, a leader in a ditch, either they've gone off strategy or they didn't articulate one or their organization is configured wrong or they haven't got the leadership chops to actually execute what they've aspired to. So somewhere in the intersection of all those spaces, we come along with some really powerful diagnostic tools, some powerful methodologies and approaches to fix or design the future or to pivot when you have to. Um, and if you want to read a little bit more about how we do it, we have a free ebook so if you'll come to visit us at www.navalent.com slash transformation, there's a, an ebook called Leading Transformation in Organizations, and it'll give you, a, give you a little bit of our playbook on how we help create change in those areas uh, for our clients. If you're also an aspiring leader, if you're a young executive trying to rise up and think about how to better use your own power, we've started a brand new community uh, of rising executives. And so if you come to navalent.com slash rising together, you can learn more about it. It's a one-year uh, cohort. It's going to kick off in a few months. It's priced for small business leaders. It's priced very affordably for a year of executive community, a year of assessment and feedback. It's based on the book Rising to Power, a year of development uh, and ex an accelerant for your own executive capabilities. So if, you're, if you have somebody in your small business you're trying to bet on and prepare for bigger leadership, this could be a great opportunity for you. I'm also at Twitter, at Ron Carucci, and I'm also on LinkedIn. So however we want to keep the conversation going, I'd love to. Absolutely. No, and I encourage everybody to do so. If we didn't get those links because you're listening on the road or at the gym like I do, we'll have those links on the show notes page for this episode. Just uh, search for Ron Carucci, and we'll have the link to that free download, the Leading Transformations. That's that's a great resource. And to this group, the Rising Together group, that link will be there as well. So again, the book, his latest book is Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives. Ron, besides your great books, is there a book that comes to mind that you would recommend? I think every, I think it should be required reading for the planet. I, I'm a, just a huge fan of David White's book, Crossing the Unknown Sea, Work as a Pilgrimage of Life. And I think it really helps keep us grounded and reminded about why we love to do what we do, even on the days we don't love it, keeping us connected to our sense of purpose that comes through our work. 
Crossing the Unknown Seas. Have not read that. I was making a note of it. We'll have a link to that as well on the show notes page at thehowofbusiness.com. All right, we'll wrap it up with these last two questions, Ron. What's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation as it relates to this, this concept of exerting our power in a small business? You know, you, you have the capacity to change the world uh, as a small business owner. You may not, may not be the whole world, but certainly the world of people that you interact with, your customers, your suppliers, your employees, your family. Um, and don't be afraid to try. Nothing in life is irrevocable except death. <laughs> so don't, don't be afraid of having do-overs. Don't be afraid of skinning your knees. Don't be held back by the fear of what your power m- might do that causes failure. Be more concerned about the things you'll left be, that will be left undone if you don't use it. Love that. Yeah, I mean, so much of it to me from what you've talked about is it's about embracing that. It's almost a, really a responsibility that we have. And we have such an opportunity, to your point, as small business owners to bring that power for, for good things in our organization and in the world that we impact, right? And, and what a privilege, right? What a privilege to yes. do it. Mm. All right. Tell us again where you want us to go online to find out more. Sure. Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. Um, some great videos, some great articles. We have a quarterly magazine called the Navalent Quarterly that gives you all kinds of tips and tools about teams and leadership and organizations and self-development we'd love to give you for free. Our ebook, Leading Transformation at Navalent.com slash transformation. And our upcoming cohort of future executives, Rising Together, Navalent.com slash rising together. Come and find us and we'd love to have you partake in all that great stuff. Twitter at Ron Carucci, LinkedIn. Let's keep our conversation going. Absolutely. That's what it's about. So many good resources out there that Ron has offered. I I went through a lot of them in doing the research for this conversation. Uh, The TEDx talk is fantastic. That's 18 minutes of your time. That's a great place to start. We'll have the links to all of that, his books, all of these links on the show notes page. Take advantage of this information and Ron's insights. Ron, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time and with and for sharing with us today. Henry, the pleasure was mine. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the, all the good work in the world you're doing for future small business leaders. Thank you. This is Henry Lopez. You've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Ron Carucci. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at our website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.